Welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies, speaking today with Professor Mary Gallagher, Professor of Political Science at the University of Michigan, where she's also the director of the Center for Chinese Studies. Professor Gallagher researches the relationships between capitalism, law, and democracy. So, Mary Gallagher, welcome to the Harvard on China podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Your new book is currently out. It's Authoritarian Legality in China: Law, Workers, and the State. Uh, from Cambridge University Press, and one of the questions that your book asks is: Can authoritarian regimes use democratic institutions to strengthen and solidify their rule? So, what do you mean by this question? So, the book was looking at the decision by the Chinese government to build a legal system and to govern the workplace as they moved away from sort of the socialist workplace, which was governed like by administrative. Regulation and by more party control. So I got interested in this topic a long time ago, and I had written about it earlier, but from a different perspective. So in this book, I look at、um, how these institutions actually work at the at the individual worker level, and when workers have problems at the at the workplace, and they try to use these legal institutions and these legal protections, do they actually work and protect them, and、um, how satisfied they are afterwards, and And basically, the conclusion is is that authoritarian regimes can only adopt democratic institutions in a half-hearted way. So, for example, with legal institutions at the workplace, there are a lot of laws that protect individual rights of workers, but、uh, many workers don't have the resources to use the laws effectively without some type of representation. And so, in a sense, they're providing the laws, but they don't provide the institutions that would provide. Uh, representation either through sort of pro bono lawyers or lawyers who are sort of activists. There are those kinds of people in China, but they've been severely constrained in the last few years. And another type of representation would be collective representation through trade unions. And of course, the trade union in China has not been able to sort of satisfy that role. So in the end, when workers try to use these institutions, they end up being very disenchanted with them. And so I guess I come down to say no, they. Cannot use these democratic institutions effectively. And so, by democratic, you're really talking about representation. Yeah, I guess democratic means something broader.、Um, it means it could mean a number of different things. For example, there are people who look at authoritarian regimes that use elections. There are authoritarian regimes that use the legislature, and people have written about that in China as well. And I was focusing on this idea of building up the judiciary and、um, providing. Workplace protections and then rule of law processes by which people make claims and then have those claims adjudicated by the state. So it's not always the case that sort of legal regimes are democratic, and I certainly wouldn't argue that the Chinese legal system is democratic. But it's certainly borrowing from this democratic tradition of resolving disputes through a legal system, sort of an authoritative legal system. So rules based. Right, rules based. Governance, which is what Xi Jinping has talked about a lot recently. So often in uh, political science, uh, China is referred to as a country that uses rule by law、mm-hmm. rather than rule of law. Right.、Um, and you argue in your book that this attempt at rule of law, the switching to more democratic、uh, judicial systems,、um, undermines the stability of authoritarian rule. What led you to that conclusion? Like, how does that process undermine rule? So the first thing that I did in the book was spend、um, several years, or, or in 
at one point in two years in China, at the very beginning of this project in 04, 05, um, working at a legal aid clinic in Shanghai and interviewing workers who had tried to use the legal system. And um, through that process of these sort of in-depth interviews with workers who actually, unlike most of the population, had adequate representation because they had been able to find legal aid, which is really pretty rare in China. But even with these people, what I found is that they really came out of the process with far less confidence in the system, believing that the system was biased towards companies, biased towards people with money or with connections, and um, a feeling of marginalization. Now, that's not unique to China. That's something that is common, I think, in legal systems generally. There's a sort of elite bias to law. And countries that use the legal system to resolve workplace disputes often have other institutions that can sort of ameliorate these problems that workers face. And so they may, like for for example, like we said, trade unions, or they might have some sort of um, administrative channel like we have in the United States with um, Equal Opportunity Commission for discrimination claims. Um, but the Chinese system actually is quite individualized and it really delegates the process of protection, like the actual trying to use these laws to protect yourself, the state has completely delegated that to individual workers. And so individual workers have to do the work of protecting themselves. And I think that that makes it a very sort of lonely and um, disenchanting experience. So based on that kind of early experience, really talking to people, I think I kind of selected a type of person who should have been satisfied in the sense that they were living in uh, Shanghai, which is a city with a well-developed legal system. This legal aid center was well-funded. It had expert lawyers and law students working there. And they also effectively often used the media to sort of press for more publicity about certain cases. I thought after that, I needed to do more work to sort of figure out was this something that was more general to the to the larger population in China. So uh, from there, I did um, some surveys that looked at different cities across China and found actually that it was even worse uh, than the people in Shanghai in the sense that among the general population, most people don't have representation, can't afford a lawyer or can't find legal aid and the trade union doesn't help them. So that these levels of sort of frustration and disenchantment were even higher among the general population. So. Finally, I guess the last part of the book looks at a hypothesis that I have and that I talked about in the book that relates this disenchantment with the law to increasing levels of protest and strikes and relating disappointment with the legal system to, to workers basically giving up and going out on the streets. And I focused on a few uh, recent cases where um, you can kind of very clearly trace out what happened with workers trying to use the legal system, the legal system not working or taking a very long time, and then the workers finally getting frustrated and, and trying to organize and, and protest. Yeah, and there's some, been some very uh, highly publicized strikes. Right. We have uh, a number of faculty, for example, who work on Foxconn mm -hmm. or other companies in China exactly. uh, and worker disenfranchisement or worker uh, frustrations at their right. employers. In the book, you say that uh, a very interesting claim you make is that a key cause for what, or a key factor for those who benefit from labor laws and those who fail to benefit is education. Mm -hmm. um, 
To what extent is education the determining factor in terms of success of legal outcome, um, rather than it being indicative of another group of factors? Yeah, that's a good question, and it's hard to answer because there's lots of things that seem to sort of correspond with higher levels of education. So, for example, if you have a higher level of education or skill, you are likely to be in a company that has sort of higher capital intensity and they may value you uh, more because they need uh, the skilled labor, so they also will treat you better. And so there's a number of different factors that I think correspond with with education. It's also the case, I think, that people with higher levels of education tend to be increasingly politically connected in the sense that they may be party members or they may be they may have resources and sort of human capital that they can use when they have a, a legal grievance and that they can use those connections um, with the court. I saw that in some of the cases. And so there's a kind of um, inequality in China that is sort of reinforced by these these factors. So people who have higher levels of education are working in better places. They may have these political connections. Um, unfortunately, in surveys in China, at least in the surveys that we did, we were unable to ask about party membership. So it's something that uh, I think a lot of people are interested in as a indication of inequality of access to institutions based on your political identity. We've had some recent research that suggested that it's not inequality necessarily that individuals in China uh, have grievances about. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's the fact that the system doesn't support or the system doesn't do what it should do on paper. Right. Do you mean sort of the difference between sort of procedural yeah, versus so, substantive justice? Um, Yawen Lei, who's mm-hmm. an assistant professor here in the sociology department, talks about this in that it's not inequality. So it's not so-and-so has more money than me. That seems very much a product of development right. and national rejuvenation. Rather, it's the system should legally or in theory or on paper do this for mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. and it fails because it's about a political inequality. Right. Um, and like you said, that happens in a number of countries, but does that strike you as a possible, uh, or as a, as a possible greater reason for why people might have grievances? Right, yeah. I think what I saw among people trying to use the legal system was something that sort of surprised me because I think you often hear that in societies like China, people actually care more about sort of substantive outcomes of, of justice, that they're more interested in what they get as opposed to did the process work? And at least among the legal aid recipients, and maybe you know those are kind of a special group, but in, at least among those people, they seemed very much focused on, did I get a fair hearing? Um, and so they often say in Chinese, uh, which I sort of wanted to translate into this concept of I want my day in court, which is something you often hear in American society, that I want to be heard in an open arena, and I want this dispute to be aired And uh, I think that, in a sense, suggested that people were really interested in finding out whether or not the institutions worked fairly. And one thing that I write about in the book, which sort of tries to unpack that a little bit by looking at different types of people, is that what I found is that a person who tended to be more sort of procedurally oriented were younger people, were people who really hadn't experienced the socialist workplace. And older people, on the other hand, didn't really agree with this idea of procedural justice. Uh, They really wanted some kind of substantive uh, outcome. I think what that meant is that that socialist generation really felt like what was unfair was that the rules had been changed midstream. And so the rules when they were hired were iron rice bowl, you're going to get 
full employment, you will never be fired, social welfare benefits that are attached to the workplace. And many of the people who were experiencing disputes at the time were older state-owned enterprise workers who were losing their jobs, uh, losing their pensions and their security because the rules had changed. So it's true that there was much less attention to procedural justice by those people, but that was partly because they were challenging the procedures themselves. And so for the generation that has grown up only knowing the reform era. Right. Those people, interestingly enough, even though they have higher levels of education and they are legalistic in terms of how they think about the workplace, in a sense, they have less extreme claims. They don't expect lifetime employment anymore. They switch jobs you know, very quickly uh, themselves as individuals. And so they're not expecting this long-term relationship uh, with an employer. So their claims are actually, in a sense, more in line with this kind of economy that China has now, which is much more market-based and workplaces that are based on contracts. And it was really this, this sort of generational divide that, that made them perceive the legal system differently. You mentioned previously that the legal system is very much based on the individual. Right. Um, and it almost seems as if that system is sort of atomizing right. the individual in an attempt to try and sort of prevent some kind of collectivization. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this is a topic that you talked about recently here at the Fairbank Centre. Um, when you came to present on uh, censorship on social media mm -hmm. uh, and the translation from online to offline repression. This topic mm -hmm. has echoes across a lot of your work with authoritarian resilience, but how did you become interested in pivoting away from legality and the law towards online censorship? Well, it's interesting. I didn't see the connection that you're making, but I guess I see it now, this, con this focus in the book on how the legal system was constructed to really emphasize individual rights and um, and marginalize or sideline collective rights. In the work on uh, repression and censorship, I got interested in it because, well, two things. One, one of my students, Blake Miller, was working on it. Uh, he's been very interested in dynamics of repression and the different ways in which the state manages and controls information. I became interested in it because I saw people in the labor realm in China, labor activists and legal activists who are increasingly constrained by the state, by both different types of online censorship and, and then um, I wouldn't say physical repression, but certainly some, some sense that the state was unhappy with what they were doing and, and was trying to uh, constrain and shut down those activities. So it was interesting to see the legal system in China and this whole notion of, of Weichuan, of, of rights protection, which the state, as I emphasize in the book, Weichuan was the state's idea, right? The state promoted that idea early on, really starting in the 80s, but definitely in the 90s and the 2000s around workplace issues. That was good as far as it got, but once it started to creep into uh, demands for collective representation, demands for collective bargaining, uh, in some cases demands for independent trade unions, the state really started to back away from this kind of Weichuan movement and, and really constrain not just labor activists, but also just rights lawyers in general. So that got me interested in this question of uh, censorship and repression. Again, it's, I think, a really interesting balancing act with social media in the sense that the state um, has a lot of interest in promoting the use of social media for, for many, many reasons, for commercial reasons, for social reasons to make people feel as if they live in a society that is relatively free. 
but also for collecting information about what people are talking about and what people are saying. But again, in the, the research that we talked about at the Fairbanks Center, it was, again, finding that the state is really intent on controlling not just collective action, but the ways in which social networks are formed. And they, I think what they're focusing on with the, the censorship is breaking down social networks as well as influential voices outside of the party, these kind of big users, these people who have big followers and who can really influence public opinion um, through social media. Yeah, censorship's a very popular topic at the moment. We, for example, have Gary King here mm -hmm. at the uh, Gov Department. Right. But it also seems as if artificial intelligence and digital technologies are not just about censorship. So after somebody has said something, it's then censored. Mm -hmm. It seems as if this is actually providing almost an unparalleled historical opportunity for a government mm -hmm. to not only influence how people are thinking right. before they say it, um, but also to just monitor a population. Right. You know, this is degrees of magnitude higher than anything we've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that artificial intelligence is a potential future for the field in terms of authoritarian adaptability? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting how quickly our thinking about social media and the internet has changed from this is going to be a tool of liberalization versus what we see now, which is really it's going to be the tool of the people who control the technology that provides the platform. And that is both large companies and governments. And um, what you see in China is a particular confluence of a government that I see as very, very interested in not just censoring what people do, not just controlling collective action of actual people physically congregating somewhere, but really affecting how people think and guiding public opinion, which has been part of the Chinese propaganda goals for, you know, for many decades. So I don't see it as a new thing for China, but I think the tools that they have, uh, the combination of, of a government that's quite capable and increasingly capable in this area, and then also um, social media companies that are domestic and that, you know, by, by limiting the competition within China to those domestic companies, it sort of allows the government to have much more influence and control. And now, of course, they've announced that they want to start to get a certain amount of shares in those companies, this, the, the Chinese government. And I guess that's uh, it's going to be sort of a big question for the field is artificial intelligence is new and it's a very sexy topic, but right. how does it change the argument? Right. I mean, I find the whole idea of an algorithm controlling what I see really frustrating because I know that more and more of us consume information that we want to see. And so we can reinforce our beliefs by only seeing that kind of information. You know, when I look at my phone and I see the news that I get and I know that that news is somehow reading what I've already read and then trying to give me more of what I've already read, I find it really disturbing because when I read, say, a newspaper and I flip through a newspaper physically, I choose what I want to read because I see it. And they're limiting now what I see. There's more talk of states like Singapore and in some degrees China not necessarily being Orwellian in their use of artificial intelligence, but being sort of Huxleyan. Mm -hmm. And that, that it's not just about censorship and repression, but also... Yeah. AI has this ability to provide better traffic patterns right. and better life. And right. in some ways, I feel like that is more of an interesting question. Mm -hmm. It's less about the censorship and more about, well, if they can use AI to prove to a population that life is actually getting better right. under their regime, maybe right. that's a, a new angle on it. Right. 
when you're in China and you see how many sort of closed caption cameras there are, it probably gives people some sense of security because they realize maybe that will cut down on crime or cut down on traffic accidents. And but at the same time, one of the things with censorship, for example, and how it interacts with these with these companies is that it's not the case that the Chinese state is unified in how it deals with censorship. But at the same time, I mean, I think compared to other governments around the world, including the American government, it's much more ambitious in, in what its goals are. Ken Liebenthal would be happy to hear that you're saying the, the state is not a unitary actor. Yes, I, I teach at Michigan, so I do. I, I totally agree with the fragmented authoritarian model for for China. And, you know, it's an interesting question whether or not information control will somehow alleviate that fragmentation. I mean, I'm sure that's what the government is hoping for, because there are real problems of sort of regulatory failure in China because the state is so fragmented. And you look at things like air pollution or food safety and how angry people are about those things. And yet the bureaucracy is just not well constructed to, to deal with those problems. Um, I have a, a slightly different question for you now, which is... Um... Listeners will already know what happened at the 19th Party Congress, but we are recording yes. mid-Party Congress. And there was a recent article on China File um, uh, written by uh, Jessica Bakker and Oliver Melton that asked, why do we keep writing about Chinese politics as if we know more than we do? Mm. Um, and it referred to the opacity of Chinese elite politics as a hinder to fully analysing what's going on, and therefore how do we make policy decisions? Do you agree with that question? Well, I mean, it's probably no accident that I really don't study elite politics. I read what people write about elite politics because I teach Chinese politics, so I need to explain it to my students. What I sometimes find frustrating more in the media than in than in academics, because I think people who do study elite politics in China know what we don't know, but I think there's often an attempt to explain it, even though lots of it cannot be explained. So, for example, I read something this week trying to explain to an American audience in a newspaper how this process works, basically saying that the Central Committee is selecting the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. And we know that that's not really what happens. We don't know what else happens within this black box. And some people have sort of hypothesized that there's a kind of reciprocal relationship between the Central Committee and the, the higher leaders. But how it actually how the sausage is made, the horse trading, yeah. we, we don't fully understand. And certainly people like me who don't study it really don't understand it. So I find it frustrating when we sometimes try to make it comprehensible to people who live in more democratic societies. And in a sense, we emphasize the aspects of selection and choice, which to me are sort of the wrong verbs to be using. Martin Dimitrov, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago, um, talks a lot about the challenge of an opaque authoritarian regime in terms of doing research. Yeah. And so I guess that's where this China file question might not necessarily just apply to elite politics, but also to studying China mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. um, you spoke that during your book, you did survey research mm -hmm. uh, to find out what was going on in China. How has our methodological study of China changed in the last few years? Well, it's changed dramatically, I think, in terms of the way in which people are studying China and the questions that they're asking and uh, access to quantitative data has, has increased a lot, not just surveys, but people are doing experiments, people are using administrative data and then using different types of text analysis or machine learning to understand those data. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I mean, I think the question that we constantly have to ask is, 
how much do we understand about how this data was produced? How confident are we that it was produced in a way that doesn't have systematic bias in it? And I think it's not always the case that we ask those questions. On the other hand, there are pressures within research universities in China to provide research opportunities to faculty who are based in China that are at the same level as if they were outside. And there's huge pressure in China for academics to publish in top journals and to publish in English in particular. So I think there's this weird contradiction right now where there is ambition among people all over, but certainly within China, to do a better job and to not be marginalized within the study of China. It certainly shouldn't be the case that the study of Chinese politics is being done better in the United States. But without better access to data and without the ability to, for example, have data replication, to have these things be open so that other people can look at them and see how they were done, that will hinder Chinese scholarship in a really important way. And I've, I've tried to tell that to colleagues in China that unless this data is available to other people, we won't be able to publish it in top journals. What advice would you give to young scholars in the field who are looking to strengthen their own methodological approach? Well, it depends. I mean, if there's a student who is already in a PhD program in political science, they will have ample opportunity to get the tools that they need to do kind of mainstream work in political science. I think the harder thing for students and researchers in general is matching those tools and skills to the questions that we want to ask. I think often it takes a couple of trips to China to figure out what are the important questions to be asked. And what I don't like in the literature right now is a tendency to ask questions that are derived from another context. Sometimes that's fine, but sometimes the context is so different. When you ask it in the Chinese context, the question is either not that interesting or just simply the, the wrong question. So I tell students, and we often try to do this for students, is we put a lot of emphasis, I think, still in Chinese politics that students have fieldwork experience, that they have Chinese language ability, that they've spent time in China, that they've collected data in China. But at the same time, I think it often takes a couple of earlier trips earlier in the PhD program to start to go to China, interact with Chinese scholars, and try to find out what are the real questions that we should be asking. Because there are lots of interesting questions that we're not focusing on. So to wrap up, I have a quick fire round for you. Okay. It is called our Fairbank Five. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's supposed to be... Is it about the 19th Party Congress? I wish it was about the 19th. We should have done a special 19th yeah. Party Congress. Yeah. Can you, it'd be like the worst game of Guess Who, wouldn't it? So they're very quick. Okay. And all I ask is a quick answer and then a very brief explanation <laughs> right. as to why that answer. So our first question is your favourite Chinese food. Oh, my favourite Chinese food is Hunan food. I really like the Suan La. And the favorite dish, it's like a pickled fish in soup. Fuchsia Dunlap, the British uh, chef who's written cookbooks on China, has changed my relationship with cooking Chinese food. So I'm actually sometimes able to reproduce Chinese food in a way that is somewhat authentic. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. And she has a cookbook on, on Hunan food. So there's a, a recommendation for our listeners. Yes, definitely Fuchsia Dunlap's cookbooks. Uh, your favorite place in China? That's a hard one. I would still have to say, since I've lived there the longest, is I still love Shanghai as a city. 
I don't agree with people who say it's too westernized because it is more westernized than say Beijing. But I, what I love about Shanghai is that the people in Shanghai, they're like New Yorkers. They believe that Shanghai is the best place in the world, and they have this insularity and this confidence that I really, really like. Shanghai food is not my favorite, but I, as a city, I like that it's a walkable city. It's a beautiful city, and to me, anyway, studying China for I don't know now twenty five years. It's a city that's changed less to me than, say, Beijing, which I find kind of too large and and so hard to navigate given its its size.、Um, your favorite Chinese saying? Okay, so I have to have my kids listen to this one because my favorite Chinese saying, which is in Shanghainese, is "ni nao zhu wat le," which is "ni ni nao zhu huai le," because my daughter, who、uh, was a baby in Shanghai, learned. This saying, I believe, from her nanny, and she would get very angry when people would try to hold her or kiss her, which happened, of course, all the time on the street because she was this red-haired, fat baby, and she used to say to people, "Ni na zuatla," which created just massive、um, laughter. So I learned Chinese before I learned Mandarin. Did you? Quite by accident, because、yeah. I learned from taxi drivers in Ningbo, <laughs> and didn't realize until I went to Beijing that this <laughs> is not what everyone speaks. <laughs> That's hilarious.、So、that makes me happy.、Um, a book that you've read recently on China that you would recommend? This is not my favorite book on China. In fact, when I read it in graduate school, I found it almost impenetrable in some ways. But in the talk that I gave at the Fairbank Center, I basically said this is a book that we should. Pay attention to because I think it still explains a lot about how the Chinese Communist Party works, particularly under Xi Jinping. And I think Xi Jinping is reviving some aspects of the party that had withered, you know, under under the last few leaders. And that's the Franz Schirmann ideology and organization in communist China, which I went back and looked at、uh, this summer because I was trying to understand. In doing this work on censorship, why the party was interested in censoring things that, to me, didn't correspond with the arguments that we've been making about censorship—things that didn't seem to be about collective action, things that didn't seem to be direct criticisms of the party, but things that perhaps are again this this notion of setting the agenda, having people think in a certain way, and controlling alternative discourses that seem to. Challenge the ideology of the party, and the example in the presentation was this debate that ended up being censored over whether this woman Yanglan was a U.S. citizen. So why does it matter if somebody is a U.S. citizen or not? And that actually, that question in China, this was this was looking at data that was from I think 2012, but that question, who has foreign citizenship, who has houses in Canada, you know, it's partly about who's corrupt, but I think also it's who. Is demonstrating their insecurity in the future of the regime or in the future of the country, and when it appears that these elites have created an ex- exit option for themselves, that creates fear and anger、uh, below for the people who don't have the ability to create exit options. So I thought that that Sherman was a, a book that you know we should go back to, even though I didn't particularly enjoy reading it when I was in graduate school. I guess that again also ties into the question of. You know, censorship is a new frontier in this field, but actually, the earlier works can really help us right. understand it. Then,、right. um, and our last quickfire question yes. is because we are a university. Yes, a class that you took or taught on China、mm-hmm. that changed your thinking about the country in some way. So, 
I would have to say it was the class that I first took uh, that was taught at Smith College. I was a freshman. I knew nothing about China. I, I knew zero about China. To demonstrate, I thought that Beijing and Peking were just two different cities in China. I literally knew nothing. And I took this class that was taught by Steve Goldstein, who is a fellow at the Fairbanks Center. And uh, it was called Whatever Happened to Marxism, which is kind of hilarious because this was 1987. And so Marxism was not gone. I mean, the Soviet Union existed. The Berlin Wall had not yet fallen. Uh, but Steve taught this course that was really a theoretical course about different interpretations of Marx or, or Marxism, communism. And uh, I had intended to go to Paris on my junior year and do what Smith girls did and go to Europe, um, continue to learn French. And after I took that class, I, I was really struck by China is the place that has taken Marxism in the kind of most interesting, most unpredictable uh, directions. And so I decided to go switch from French to Chinese and start studying Chinese politics. So you, you join a throng of us who all, Nancy Hurst as well was a French major. <laughs> we all started with French and then switched to China. Might have just been French being troublesome. French. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I do like the idea of Chinese grammar being much easier than French grammar. Well, Mary Gallagher, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much.